With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, direct-to-consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Ladies and gents, this is uh, a Celtic State of Mind. My name is Laura Bradburn. It's Friday, and so that means, as always, I'm joined by Tony Haggerty and Jim Orr. Tony, how you doing? I'm very well, Laura. Yourself? Not too bad. Jim, how are you? Good, Laura. Thanks. Good to hear. Good to hear. Now, we usually like to try and keep things light-hearted on a Friday, or as light-hearted as they can be, given the season that we've had. But... Uh, We'll start start off with a little bit more of a sombre tone. Um, you've seen some of the other podcasts this week talking about it, but yesterday marked the 30 second, 32nd anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster. Um, and I thought, uh, given given Tony's um, close uh, close relationship with, or I should say close relationship, but idolisation of, of, of Kenny Dalglish and, and the fact that both him and Jim will obviously have memories of that day. I thought, uh, who better to ask than these two guys to to give their their input? And I know some people in the comments will be sitting thinking, this 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 isn't a, an issue that affected Celtic directly. So why are we talking about it in a Celtic podcast? But I think uh, everybody can agree that it's a it's a an event that marked uh, the hearts and minds of every football fan up and down this country, even those of us who. We're only young at the time and maybe don't remember it directly happening. It's been part of the football consciousness for, for years since and so uh, it's always always right to mark it. Um, Tony, I'll come to you first. As I said before, you, you've you said in your book, you've said numerous times in this podcast that Kenny Dalglish is a major idol of yours and, and we heard Declan talking about it on the podcast yesterday. It, the whole event marked him as a man, didn't it? It, it? it left its mark on him indelibly, not only... 
that that disaster, but the Heizo disaster and, and the Ibrox disaster, both of which he was also unfortunate enough to be directly involved in. So what are your thoughts on on your memories of Hillsborough and on on Kenny Douglas and how he handled that whole situation? Strap yourself in, because I might speak for a wee while here, right? Okay. <laughs> Two quotes from Douglas stand out at that time, right? First one, post Hillsborough, he said, they supported Liverpool. Now it's a ton of Liverpool Football Club to support them. And then he was asked about his role in it and he said, I just know I've done a little bit to help them. It's a fraction of what they've done to help us. I'll forever be the one that's in the red. Right? The humanity and decency that Kenny Release showed during that time. He was a manager of Liverpool Football Club. He was a public face. And he not only had to manage the club and take care of the players, but somehow through that, that that period, it was King Kenny who had to be the shining and guiding light to all the families who'd lost their loved ones. Now, I think he went to all, or nearly all of the 96 funerals, but he certainly made sure there was a Liverpool representative at every one of them. Right? And bearing in mind, this was a city that was swimming against a tidal wave of grief, right? And against a system that had besmirched the whole city, the whole football club, and those loyal supporters on to the most horrific tragedy, which we all now know was entirely preventable. But if you want to measure true greatness, then you look no further than King Kenny, plus Hillsborough. He and his family well, stood shoulder to shoulder with other families in the 90s who'd suffered immeasurable loss. But King Kenny and his family were also silently suffering, carrying their own burden. And it was up to Douglas to carry the whole emotional weight of Liverpool Football Club and its fan base. He stood up for the truth and justice and he refused to back down. And he was there uh, at every juncture for the 96 and the people of Liverpool and the city have never forgotten it. When he quit two years after Hillsborough in the aftermath of that wonderful 4 each draw with Everton in the FA Cup tie, he said that he quit because he couldn't make the substitutions and he didn't know what to do. And if that was the case, he didn't deserve to be there. I just think he just needed to get out and breathe because I don't think he was allowed to grieve himself properly. Even the open King Kenny up when he eventually leaves, there'll be a piece of his big red Liverpool heart missing because it died at, it died at Hillsborough, part of it died and a piece of it's missing. And I've said before on this pod, as a player he was untouchable, but he's a person in the aftermath of Hillsborough. He came into a league of his own and you can't hold a candle to him because he showed what a born leader and, and a, a born leader I mean really was and it took its toll on him it did you're right you <coughs> said that toll and uh, you know but I, I still say that the the Hillsborough scars in King Kenny have never really healed but it's for his football ability alone he's revered on Merseyside but for stepping up to the plate after Hillsborough he remains a bigger hero to the Liverpool pe- people in their cause King Kenny nickname says it all but the one thing I would urge everybody to do after this podcast is to go onto YouTube and listen to the radio commentary of Peter Jones eh, on the BBC because it's burned in my memory. And he, he describes the gymnasium at Hillsborough being used as a mortuary for dead bodies. He describes stewards packing the belongings of the dead into plastic bags. He describes the ambulances coming onto the pitch and the oxygen being administered to victims, and he paints this picture, haunting, harrowing, emotional theme, yet in the midst of it all, he sometimes picks out these evocative, powerful, piercing and poignantly brilliant and beautiful words to wrap up the broadcast. You can hear my voice because I get emotional, and he says this, There are red and white scarves of Liverpool. There are red and white bobble hats of Liverpool. There are red and white rosettes of Liverpool and nothing else, out there on the enclosure where all the deaths occurred and the sun shines now. That's the saddest bit of radio I think I've ever heard and probably ever hear in my lifetime. And if you substitute the words Liverpool in those sentences, it could easily be your club and their supporters. And if Peter Jones' commentary doesn't move you or make you want to cry, then you don't love football and you'll never really understand what it means to be a true football fan. And it's there, but for the grace of God, do I, as we've all done what the 96 did and attended football matches, but the difference is we've always come home. And one last thing, I'm going to dedicate some words to the 96 
and the justice for the 96 campaigners and their families and their lyrics borrowed from a U2 song called American Soul and 32 years on from Hillsborough they seem so apt and the words say blessed are the arrogant for theirs is a kingdom of their own company blessed are the bullies for one day they will have to stand up to themselves and blessed are the liars for the truth can be awkward well um, there you go Jim, um, <laughs> how do you follow that? I, I was going to say, I, I want to come to you. Uh, I want to ask how you, you know, what your memories are of the day. I don't think I, I could feel myself getting emotional just listening to Tony. Um, I've read books about it. I've watched documentaries. I, I get emotional about it because. As Tony said, I've been a football fan. I've gone to football matches. I've loved it. I've always been fortunate enough to come home. Um, but you undoubtedly will have memories of that day and, and how things unfolded. What are your memories of that day and what are your thoughts about it 32 years on? I think it's very hard to follow what Tony said there. But uh, you were asking at the start about this being a Celtic podcast and how you can tie this back to Celtic is that You've got one of the best football stadiums in Europe and you can trace that back to Hillsborough, basically, because what you'll find is that people like yourself, Laura, uh, and I see anyone under the age of you know, 30, 35 will not know what it's like to go to a football stadium where you stand and you stand for the whole game. And you literally did take your life in your hands going to a lot of games. And ask any Celtic fan, ask any football fan that went to football before the Old City Stadium what it was like. Tony talked about YouTube there. If you go to YouTube and watch any match that features the cop in the 60s, and you'll see people swaying down the cop, crushing other people. It's all kind of good natured stuff. But you have matches like, I mean, I think this, this, this week was the 50th anniversary of Celtic beating Leeds. Well, over 130 odd thousand at Hamden Park. That was dangerous, you know. Even outside football grounds are dangerous. I mean, it's been. 20, 30 years since I've been to Tynecastle, but also at Tynecastle was a death trap. Uh, when you via the Gorgie Road entrance, you were all trapped in together. And in fact, there was a, not an incident two or three years ago at Celtic Park, just outside the ground where people were getting crushed, having to jump over walls to get away. So yeah. I think when you found it before Hillsborough, uh, football, football directors, football administrators had no time for fans at all. And I think your generation has benefited from that. Because yep. you know, you're used to going to a lot of football and sitting down. So that's that's the Celtic connection, I think. In terms of what I remember of the day, we were playing on the Sunday in the Scottish Cup semi-final. Rangers were playing on the Saturday. And for some reason, I had the TV on, which I didn't usually have. And then they went over to Hillsborough. And you saw the stuff start to unfold. And you thought at the time it was guys just fighting. Because that, throughout the 80s, the 80s were a bit mental in terms of football. And it was only three years after Heisel. And Heisel was different because Heisel was caused by people not behaving, whereas Hillsborough was caused by lots of other factors. So you just thought, well, that's just people fighting. And then as it started to unfold, it became more and more hard to watch it. And then, as Tony said, you heard the reports coming in that it was, people have actually died, and you're thinking, oh dear, and it was like 10 people, it became 20 people becomes. And you couldn't understand, you could, you could understand why it happened because of what I just said there, but you couldn't fathom the enormity of what happened. And the Ibrox disaster was like 71. So that was 18 years later. So there was no, you know, the, the, there wasn't the extent of radio and TV broadcasting and football matches. So, so that kind of happened and nobody kind of knew much about it. Even I mean, lots of people had come back from the game and knew nothing about it at all. Whereas Hillsborough was like live in front of you and it was just heartbreaking watching it. And then what then unfolds, the fact that the fans were getting blamed and, and all the nonsense that happened thereafter, and it took so much time to, so many years to clear their name. It was just appalling. And I've, yourself, Laura, I've read most of the books and saw the documentaries, etc. And it's, it's a hard, hard watch. I think Tony described it really, really well there. But uh, hopefully, some of that will never happen again. And I think the fact we've got all season stadium means that's less likely. But I've still been to football matches since the all season stadium where you're outside the ground and you're getting crushed and lifted off your feet. You know, so I think that, you know, uh, we move on, you know. Yeah. 
No, I, I think you both summed it up perfectly. And to speak from my generation, certainly I'm, you know, I was only a year old when it happened, but to speak to anybody younger than me who's maybe watching this who doesn't remember a time before internet, I, I, I just do. But one of the things that uh, moved me a lot was um, seeing people getting in front of television cameras on the pitch to try and tell their family that they were okay. Because how else did you communicate with people at that time? You had to chap on yep. doors on house, in houses in Sheffield to say, can I use your phone to phone home? There were some people yep. didn't see their family for hours and hours waiting for them to come off a bus, not knowing if they would come off yep. a bus, having seen that happen. And so for anybody watching this who thinks, you know, I, I don't know how you can watch it and not think that it was a big deal, but for anybody watching, I, I would urge you to to look out all the documentaries, to read the books, um, to, to, to look at that gymnasium that, that Tony spoke about so so passionately. It's, it's, it's a situation you hope never, ever darkens anybody's door again. Um, and hopefully with the safety in place. I know everybody's pushing to go back to some form of, of safe standing, but you know I understand the reluctance as far as that's concerned uh, when you see what has happened in the past with standing areas. And hopefully there's a... There's a, a happy medium that can be found so that something like that never happens again. Uh, but anyway, we will, like like Jim says, we'll, we'll move on. We'll try and uh, get back to things that are more directly Celtic. Unfortunately, not as cheery a subject, but I wanted to get this one out the way as well. Um, and in the words of Tony, strap yourself in because I have some things to say about the Neil Lennon footage that surfaced. Um, now, I should start this by saying a, a caveat in that we don't know the timescale of when that happened. We don't know if it's current or if it's not. Um, we don't know what situation Neil Lennon is in as we speak. Uh, and having had the week that I've had on Twitter, when I saw that footage, I thought to myself, do not respond immediately. Because as we talked about last week, your response can be dictated by emotion. It can be dictated by uh, anger. It can be dictated by upset. But I have to say... When I was watching that footage and watching some of the comments underneath it, I was utterly, utterly disgusted. What you saw there was not a man who had just had a few too many to drink. That was a man who, whether it's now, whether it was in the past, whether it's something that you'll experience again in the future, that was a man struggling. That was a man trying to medicate with whatever he could put his hands on. And I swear to anybody listen to this, if you had the temerity, the gall, to go on social media and say that he deserves it, that because you aren't a Celtic supporter or because you thought Neil Lennon was a poor manager, as I did, that he deserved the kind of treatment that he received by having that plastered all over social media at what was obviously one of his most vulnerable moments, then I am absolutely disgusted because... I stand here right now and say to you, if you don't know or have never experienced depression, alcoholism, somebody or, or, or know somebody close to you who has tackled that or been affected by it, then those words could never come out of your mouth. That I, I was just I was just absolutely shocked by some of what I saw. And as somebody who's been on Twitter since 10 or 12 years ago, I thought I'd seen everything. That was just absolutely shocking to me. I could not believe it. And, and JP put it well yesterday. I don't care what team you support. I don't care what team you play for. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what your beliefs are. Nobody deserves to be treated in the way Neil Lennon was treated. And the only person that deserves any kind of criticism is the scum that put that up on the internet after filming it. Tony. <laughs> Take the floor. I read a tweet from uh, a quote from Jurgen Klopp. It's the Marketers Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. 
the best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. And it sums it up brilliantly, right? And, I, and it came into my head when I saw the Neil Lennon video. And Jurgen Klopp said, see if you're sending these messages and videos and online abuse while claiming to be a Liverpool supporter. I take the word Liverpool out and say a football supporter, be it to players or an opponent or whoever, then you're not welcome at our club or in our sport. See if you've got this hate in your heart and in your head, you can walk alone because you do not walk with us. And I say that to anybody, like you said, who posts messages, abuse, you're a cretin. I've said it before when I was saying that the girls were getting abuse. You're an absolute cretin. There is no room for your bigotry, your racism, your sectarianism, or whateverism you've got. Bin it, because you're no welcome in football, not Liverpool, Celtic, Rangers, for that matter, or any club. You're just no welcome. You're an absolute cretin. And whoever posted that video on Neil Lennon, I hope they get dealt with. I hope they get found and they get dealt with because they deserve to feel the full force of the law because, as you rightfully said, that's a man that was struggling. And if if you've never known, as you say, depression, alcoholism and any of these kind of uh, illnesses, then you will never, never know. You know, as they say, before you cast whatever aspersions, walk a, a mile in somebody's shoes, you know, so... I'd, I'd defy him to walk a mile in Neil Lennon's shoes and put up with <clears throat> some of what Neil Lennon's had to put up with in this country. Shocking, absolutely shocking. And it's a viral video. I, I took, I, I only saw it because it came, appeared in my timeline. And I, do you know what? I was just, and it got to the end, and then the guy shouted the slur, and I just thought, you know what? That's it. I, I watched it. Not, I watched it, Tony, and wish I hadn't seen it. I correct. I, I didn't. I didn't want to see it. I, I, I couldn't not unsee it. If you get what I mean, and I, I, I actually threw my phone down and I just walked away from my phone because I thought I don't want to be scrolling through messages, people justifying it, and others, you know, and supporting you. And I just threw it away, and I, I came off Twitter that night because it's it's a poison, and when you let it infect you in your home like that, it can affect you. So. I just think that at some point, people that do this have to be held accountable because it's a crime. Yeah, and I, and I say I say it again. Uh, one thing that came to mind was, um, I've seen footage and I've seen videos of of Paul Gascoigne at his worst. I took no pleasure in that. Same as JP yesterday said, I take no pleasure in seeing any human being in that kind of state. And uh, it doesn't matter where you're from. Um, Jim, I've seen a lot of people levelling criticism at us and other podcasts saying, how can you how can you be sympathetic now when you were so critical of Neil Lennon as a manager? But I think, I think there is a distinction there to be made. I, I don't think it's hypocritical to say that you didn't want him to continue to be manager and you didn't think he was doing a good job while at the same time saying he doesn't deserve the treatment that he's received having that, that stuff posted all over social media. I think they're two different things, Laura, altogether. Uh, Tony came with a phrase there. Another phrase is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think uh, if somebody thought it was okay to film somebody and put it on social media, then they should be perfectly okay with them being outed and then being put on social media because they thought it was okay to do that. And social media is a great thing, but it's also a terrible thing as well. And there needs to be a lot more done about this kind of stuff that Twitter... The people who run Twitter must know where that came from. And it's a crime. So out this guy. And maybe if that happens, people will think twice about doing some of the things that they've done, taping Neil Lennon or taping Paul Gascoigne or whatever. 
Social media should be a good thing, a happy thing, uplifting thing. And as Tony said, it's poison at times. It's absolute poison. Uh, Neil Lennon's a big personality. Neil Lennon's well-known. Uh, as you said before, we don't know when that was. And I think if you are Neil Lennon, you have to be very careful where you go for a pint uh, because people are sitting about with camera phones and whatever, you know, so he has to be careful. But I think uh, all we did or all anyone would do is put a subjective opinion out there to say that, you know, this guy's doing well, this guy's not doing so well. And the results spoke for themselves. And I think the majority of Celtic fans got to the point that says, maybe we need a change of manager. And I don't think people were abusing Neil Lennon. I mean, there was clowns putting on the kind of no entry sign with a Neil Lennon picture behind it. But they're just clowns as well. And that's the usual social media stuff. And I think uh, if you take on the job of Celtic manager or any major club, then people are always going to comment on whether you're doing a particularly good job. At the end of the day, <laughs> as I keep saying on the podcast, it's just job. It's just the fact that, you know, you can actually see the job that they're doing and people want to talk about it. And it's all over the media. Uh, you and I do a job and nobody sees what we do. You know, and I think if you had people commenting your job, you get a bit annoyed about it. But if, if you take on such a job like that, you have to expect that people are going to comment. And as long as they keep the comments to, you know, how you're doing as a football manager and nothing personal, what that thing on Twitter was, it was, was all about personal stuff. You know, and it's totally unacceptable. And just all I can do is echo the comments that you guys have made about how bad, how bad that was. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, they're totally different. I mean, uh, what happened on Twitter and people assessing how good or bad a particular manager is doing totally different altogether. Yeah. Um, To be honest, I think the best thing you can do on Twitter, Facebook or YouTube is watch this very show. So thank you everybody for doing that. Uh, Keep watching, keep commenting, keep sharing. We really do appreciate all your your input. And if you are affected by... uh, any of the topics that we've discussed already today, then obviously there's resources out there. Um, I'll make sure to share some links to things after the show. So if you are struggling, then please make sure and speak to somebody because I promise you uh, these these situations and these issues do get lighter uh, with the weight of two people carrying them rather than one. So um, please uh, make sure you do that. But we will move on to... I was going to say we'll move on to lighter fare. But I want to talk about John Kennedy and his potential managerial prospects. So it's up to you whether you consider that lighter fare or not. Um, I was watching the uh, the exclusive interview he did with Celtic TV yesterday, and there was a few things in it. Again, I, I use the old phrase, "he spoke well." Um, but Tony, as I was saying to you before before we came on air, he talked about potentially relying on somebody producing a piece of magic to win the game uh, against Rangers uh, this weekend. And, you know, if that had been Neil Lennon, a lot of people would have been critical of that. They'd have said there wasn't enough thought put into to the, the sort of plan going forward. So, you know, I think there was... What I took away from it was that there's... A, you can get away with a lot if you present yourself well, is what I, w- what I would think. Um, what are your thoughts of maybe what you saw from that interview and, and, and how he's done so far in his managerial post? First and foremost, I think he's... like Everybody wishes John Kennedy a success, but I think all three of us and a lot of the supporters on the game, they just don't want to see him get the job at this particular moment in his coaching career. Because I think he'll be too big for him. And it, it, you know, it's not a... Not a, uh, an appointment that would enamour the Celtic fans. I get back to the appointment disappointment analogy. That would be a major disappointment to the fans. But I think in terms of coming across, he's came across really well. He's back to club. He, you know, he spoke out against the SFA last week and came across really well. He was very measured in his comments. And he, he talks the talk. And last week, the team walked the walk. They played really, really well. And all we wanted when Kennedy took over for the eight games or however long he's going to be in charge, was there to be an improvement and some hope that he could maybe take going into next season? And, you know, Jim has spoken about the death by a thousand cuts, but if they can continue the level of performance, and I'm uh, gauging it that it was Livingston, and Livingston offered not much resistance last week, but there's no reason to suggest that Celtic can continue to play like that <coughs> in the season, that they will improve, Results can get better, and they can go to Ibrox and win both of those games. And that's all the Celtic supporters wanted. Some improvement, and to go to Ibrox in both these games now and put up some resistance and hopefully come out in the better end of the result. 
I mean that that, that that's not a hard, that that's not a hard ask. You know, and Kennedy seems to have sort of uh, galvanised them a wee bit with proof of being it, and the proof of being Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, you you're going into <clears throat> you know Ibrox on a massive cup tie, and you know your 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 season hinges on it in terms of silverware. So we'll yep. be in a position to judge on how they play, but so far he's, he's done what you would expect of any kind of Celtic manager. Spoke a good game, came across well and set his team out to actually attack and win football matches and he's had a, a degree of success with that so far. Yeah, uh, to, to pick up on something you said there, I got a lot of stick uh, post... I can't remember when it was, it was. I was on whether it was last Friday's bulletin or uh, the post-match coverage, but I, I said something along the lines of that... Uh, the only way John Kennedy could make a case for himself becoming manager is if he walks into the boardroom with the Scottish Cup at the end of the season and puts it down. Now, I got some feedback on Twitter and things like that saying that I was calling for him to be manager. I can say right here, right now, that that is not what I was saying. What I was saying was actually the exact opposite (coughs) of the only way in which he could be considered for manager from now is if he does walk in with the Scottish Cup because he's got an opportunity now where if he can get past Rangers with all due respect uh, to the rest of the competition you would automatically make us favourites for the trophy or you should um, maybe this season doesn't doesn't reflect that but you know saying that that is his best chance does not mean that I think he should be manager because I certainly certainly don't I think he's got much more to learn and in fact I, I uh, made the argument a, a few weeks ago that there's a level of consistency that needs to be considered when people talk about getting rid of Scott Brown and potentially keeping John Kennedy because, you know, why would you get rid of one and not the other if they've both performed poorly? But that's that's a discussion for another j- day. I'll come to you, Jim. Uh, what <clears> have you made of things so far? Obviously, he seems to have kind of peaked with the influence that he's had having that... that that 6-0 win over Livingston that we all said was coming and, and we've talked often enough about how he appears to, to handle himself well in the media situation. Are you are you impressed by him? What are your thoughts so far? Uh, firstly, if you're playing by a thousand cuts bingo, it's only when I say it, not Tony. So 28 <laughs> minutes is, yep. is the answer this week. Uh, <laughs> I think John Kennedy is a very intelligent, articulate man. Uh, I think he's been very clever. Uh because I actually thought when he took over, he put his stamp on the team. But he didn't do it straight away. I think he's made subtle, small changes incrementally. And I think if you look at all the games I've played so far, we've made you know a ridiculous amount of chances or shots and goal. We've had a better shape about us. We've played a bit better. Uh, we haven't lost as many goals. We've only lost a one goal so far. So you have to say he's done a good job. I think also at the start... In front of the media, I thought he was quite meek. I thought, you know, when he was asked a question, he was saying, yeah, that's right. You know, he wasn't saying anything too controversial in the last two weeks. He said the thing about the COVID, and then he said the other day about, you know, on our day, the best team. I think it's very clear in terms of what he's done so far. Uh, I would like him to get the job. I mean, I always, I always think that, I mean, I haven't said too much against John Kennedy this, because again, as I've said a number of times before, I don't really know what he does. And I think there's obviously been a bit of a personality clash between him and the manager. Because when you when you hear other managers talking about John Kennedy, they all like him. They all think he's a good guy. The Damien Dove and Rogers of this world and the players apparently all like him. So he must be doing something. Right. Kendo, I think. You know, and uh, <laughs> Kendo. I mean, I think it's... Another thing is that it's, it's kind of football fans, you, you can never really look upon a football manager as an actual job. You know, and I think if you look at things from John Kennedy's point of view, I think when the last manager left, he must have thought he was going to get the job at that point. And in fact, when you look back on it, that'd have been a logical thing to do, just to keep the continuity the last few games of the for the, for the season. He doesn't get the job; he must be hacked off. And like I'm sure that I mean, people tuning into this must have had a boss in the past where you thought he's a he's a he's a fantastic boss. Love him, you would do anything for him. He takes an interest in you and the staff, and then that guy leaves. And the next boss comes in, and you don't really fancy him at all. And that makes life a bit more difficult. And that's what I think's happened over the last, you know, year and a half or so. But 
to answer the question, I think he's done really, really well. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he won on Sunday. And as you say, if, if, if we won on Sunday, then we should go and win the Scottish Cup. So it'll be a kind of slight consolation because nothing else mattered apart from the 10 this year. So it'll be a, bit, yeah. a nice wee way to end the season. But uh, he's doing okay to answer the question. He's doing okay, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think to be honest, Tony, we were talking about it before we came on air and doing okay for me between now and the end of the season is all we really needed. We needed somebody to come in, steady the ship, calm things down after what had been the most up and down season I can remember uh, for years. Um, so I think in that alone, even if we hadn't played particularly well, particularly well he's taken a bit of the sting out of the situation and that in itself has has proved beneficial, I think. I think the very fact that you're going to Ibrox on Sunday is in as optimistic a mood as you can possibly be tells you the steps that John Kennedy and the effect that he's had on the team. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, you wouldn't have wanted Rangers in the Cup. You know what I mean? A few like, months ago, you'd have been like, oh, no, you know, no, no another game against them. You know, you would have just, you just wanted, as Jim says, the season to be over. You know, just get it over and done with and let's move on. You know, so the fact that you're... I mean, I, I, I remain very optimistic that Celtic can win both the games at Highbrooks. I really do. You know, and I think I think the fact that all the players have got something to play for now, whether it's to win the Scottish Cup, to, to shatter Rangers' unbeaten league run, playing for a contract or playing for a move or playing to impress the new guy who's going to be... who's supposedly going to be taking over... And I remain convinced I'm still in the Eddie Howe camp. I've not flinched from that. I still believe that Eddie Howe will be the new manager of Celtic. And I'm hoping that uh, he is doing his due diligence and homework and uh, remotely watching Celtic and assessing everything uh, as we speak. You know, I'm still disappointed that you haven't had a chance to do your Jerry McLaura B and announce the new manager live on the pod. Breaking news, everybody. Breaking news. I'm sure... (laughs) Sure, that will come at some point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I think Celtic are in as good a shape as they can possibly be going into going into Sunday, you know, and hopefully Forrest makes it as well, and they'll be in better shape. Yeah, good comment from Strange Love the Doctor on YouTube. Uh, thanks everybody for commenting. We see them all coming in. Uh, I like Kendall, he's doing well and I appreciate the work that's actually being done on the park. So I think that's another thing that we feel or, or certainly I've seen uh, people express is that uh, towards the end of Neil Lennon's tenure we weren't really sure what he was doing. We weren't really sure if he was... Uh, putting anything across uh, to the players in terms of a game plan and that was something that was certainly alluded to as far as you know interviews with Callum McGregor would suggest to it. so to even see the basics being put back in place has been something that's been encouraging but uh, as for as for who gets the job we unfortunately do not know yet it remains to be seen um, you will hear about it here no doubt one of the first places you'll hear about it once it does get announced but uh, until then we, we live in hope and expectation Um but we'll move on to another contentious topic. Now, Jim, you and I had some off-air discussions about this during the week. It was one of the reasons I chose to distance myself from Twitter this week because I get a bit into a bit of an exchange with uh, with with some people on Twitter about a comment I made in reaction to our very own Russell Boyce suggesting that he would take Mourinho for, for Celtic manager. Now, I'm perhaps a bit extreme in that Something that happened in 2003 shouldn't preclude somebody from becoming a Celtic manager, but it does weigh heavily on my mind when I talk about, you know, Mourinho. Now, let's put aside the fact that I don't think we've got a cat in hell's chance of him ever becoming Celtic manager, but if if we did, he's got a way of playing football that I find very undesirable. It was on full show in Seville, um, and it has been since in a lot of teams that he's played at and I don't just mean the negative football and parking the bus and things like that. I mean what I would just call a dishonest method of playing the game. Looking to cheat the referee, looking to cheat um, certain people uh, and win in what I would call a less than stellarly manner. My my comment to Russell on that and, and what I was arguing the case was I don't want to see a Celtic team doing that. I, I don't want to win trophies that way. 
we've all seen very close to home what happens when you try and cheat your way to success. Um, it can come back and bite you pretty severely, and that is not something that I would, I would want to happen to my club. So, Jim, I'll come to you first because I think you had a slightly different opinion to me on it. But what are your thoughts, not only on you know Seville and and that kind of thing, but on on the ethics of of playing football more widely? So I get the easy question then. Good. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think I think you have to define the word cheating. You know, I don't think Porto cheated. I think it was gamesmanship, you know. And I think you have to look at the laws of the game and look at referees. And if they do their job and it doesn't happen, I mean, one of my one of my bugbears came back decades, before, long before you were born, Laura, is teams at time waste, right? You could call yeah. that cheating if you want to call it gamesmanship, whatever you want to call it. And what I don't understand, because I don't understand loads of things about football, what I don't understand why particularly now with the all-seated stadia, which is a bit of a link to what we're talking about, is they don't stop the clock, right? Because fans get irate when players go down, you know. And it's only in the last maybe 20 years, Tony, you would know better than me, that we've had a fourth official holding up a board to tell mm-hmm. us what's happening, how much injury time we're having. Because before that, you'd no idea. You know, mm-hmm. you were wondering at the end of the game, when will the game stop? You didn't know. And in this day and age, for me, there's no excuse. If a player gets down injured, the fourth official just stops the clock and the fans can see the clock and we can relax because we know the right amount of injury time is going to get added on. And over the years, I think they've said that in any normal football match, a 90-minute football match, actual physical, uh, the game being played is no more than 65 minutes. So there's 25 minutes lost at least and every game with the ball going out the park, people celebrating goals and all the stuff that goes with that. So you stop the clock, then you stop the time waste. You get a strong referee who knows the game inside out, then you deal with the gamesmanship that happens. You know, If you do that, it will still be wiped out. In terms of the question you were asking during the week there about, uh, I thought Porto used a lot of gamesmanship on the night. Uh, I like Mourinho, uh, I did like Mourinho for a number of years. I think I liked his teams. I think he's gone a bit, a wee bit uh, off the wall in the past few years. But we talked earlier in the season about elite managers. He's one of the elite managers. And you put him in charge of Celtic, I've got no issues at all. Um, mm-hmm. So that's 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 my view. And Tony, this is this is where football. Uh, is at its best, is in the grey areas between the black and white, what some of us like, what some of us don't. Um, well, let's I, just... I, I, yeah, sorry, on you go. I'll actually say, see if you get to a European final, it's not for losers. You do what you can to win the game, right? I'm not saying cheat, but if you're talking about dark arts, you've got to be cuter. You know, you pulled over cuter in Celtic that evening, that's all, but... It was a win at all cost culture, but they were in a European final. So yeah. someone has said to me before, if you if you were offered the Champions League final but you'd lose it, would you take it? I'd say nah, no chance. Because yeah. you European finals are not for losers. And I just think that night that like it's it's not in the British psyche to you call it cheating, but to perform the dark arts, you know, but it should be now. Because it's too much to lose in football now. You know, and I just think Celtic that night, well, you know, they, they just, they, they, well, one, they, they didn't have a strong referee, as Jim said, but I don't want to blame the referee per se, but they just weren't cute, cute enough. You know, they were yeah. falling for every Porto trick. You know, Mourinho knew that. That was Celtic's Achilles heel, because he knew it was the old stiff upper lip, you know, British-Scottish way of playing. You know, we're gentlemen, we're this, we're that. He, he tuned right into it and thought, that's how we'll get them. And they did. It was Celtic's undoing in the end. See, if you go toe-to-toe with that, you just go, right, is that right? You're going to do it. Well, we can play dirty as well. I mean, I, I, and Jim will be able to tell you this better, but I think in all of Jock Steen's time, he only set out once to sabotage a match in terms of Celtic's tactics, and that was the away leg in Dukla Prague, in, in Prague, when they were 3-1 up and they drew 0-0, and seemingly Celtic just kicked the ball out and defended... Uh, their penalty area and just kept what they had. It was a most unlike Celtic performance, but he said we'll save it for the final, and then they did. 
They won it by playing the pure, inventive, beautiful football, right? So there's a time and a place for these things, you know, and that was a time and that was a place that night to be cute. You know, we, we, that that's what annoys you about Seville. They were just cuter. They, I, they, had, they had better players, but we had a man that was anointed that night thought he was going to get a hat-trick. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, people blame Bobo for being sent off. And do you know, do you know what? I maybe had a small bearing, but I actually think Big Sherbert Dab would have saved penalties. He just couldn't save that one that came through. That was a, seemed like a simple ball. You know, but see if it had gone to penalties, I think Big Rab would have saved a couple of penalties. But it's all I've seen bucks and maybes. But he just had to be a wee bit cuter and a wee bit wiser to what Porto were up to. You know, and sadly, some British teams, Scottish teams in particular, fall victim to that and have come a cropper big style because of it. Yeah. Jim, I, yeah, I think also if, if we were winning, just, just to, to, sorry, to follow that point, Tony's making, if, if, if we'd been winning 3 2 with 10 minutes to go in Seville, we'd have been wasting all the time in the world. Oh, That's what we would do. But also, Tony, you made, you, you made quite an interesting point there, Tony, and this is obviously football's just about different opinions. Uh, a few weeks ago, I said something about uh, the quadruple tre- treble being a great achievement, but it was a domestic thing and nobody really paid much attention with it outside Scotland. I got a few quotes and I got a few comments on YouTube saying, "Don't be daft! This was an unbelievable achievement, etc." And I then posed the question: Would you rather be one in Seville or one in quadruple mm. travel? There's only one answer to that, and that's one in Seville. Would yeah. you rather win nine in a row or one in Seville? It was Seville. And you made a wee point here, Tony, which I would disagree with. Actually, uh, uh, I'd much rather be lost in Seville than did nine in a row because Seville was this, you know, was this generation's Lisbon. And people were talking about Seville forever, you know. And they were just, I mean, I was very fortunate to be there. And just to be there and to experience that and to be on the map, it was unfortunate the way the thing worked out. But everyone was just happy to be there. And if we'd have won, it'd have been icing on the cake. But there's no comparison for me anyway, my opinion, that if you compared Seville to the quadruple treble, even losing in Seville, I'd take Seville. What would you say to that, Tony? I think that's, that's a very fair point. I think we all have great memories of Seville and of the run and all that. My thing about Seville is it was just one of the most celebrated failures ever because losing's no in the equation when you get to the European final. I can't, I can't reconcile myself with that. And, yep, it was great to get there. And it was everything that I've ever, my generation have ever wanted to do as a Celtic supporter. It was my Lisbon, but it's just tainted by the fact that we lost that. I, I can't bring myself to watch it. I just, it's... I mean, my, one of my best mates got engaged at Seville. He really popped the question in the big square and all well, the crowd were going mental and he, he he loves it for that reason as well. And I, and I just like, aye, and it's kind of like, aye, it happened. Great. I, I just I, I just wanted to win so badly just to say that I'd, I'd watched my team win a, a European trophy. And I maybe, I, I differ for Jim maybe in that sense. You know, winning was everything to me in Seville. You know, and, I, and if it's it's the one game that I would swap in the history of watching Celtic, it's the one game. Just I, I want to replay it and win it. You might, I'll, Jim might say the the World Club Championship uh, against Racing Club or maybe something else. I don't know, but uh, no, that is. I think back to Seville. I think, I, think <laughs> yeah. I think in terms of Seville, actually, I I I didn't think we'd win it. I thought Porto would always be probably too probably too good for us. And the only time I thought we'd win it is when Henry scored the second goal. Yeah. And it was a 10-minute yeah. spell there. I thought we could actually win this. And then when that 10-minute spell went away, I thought it's still an uphill task. And I think, for me, what was unfortunate is most of the team didn't show up that night. I mean, Henry was unbelievable. Yeah. But the rest of the team didn't show. Whether it was the heat, I mean, it was like 9 o'clock at night and it was over 100 degrees, so that was understandable. Whether it was just one game too many, but if even half the team had turned up, I mean, it had just sneaked it, but it was such an occasion, and to have got there and uh, it, it, it put us on the map, you know, put us on the yeah. map more than one in nine in a row would do or a, or a quadruple treble would do. It just put us on the map, and yes, it was dead unfortunate we didn't just do it. But I mean, in terms of the last fifty years, that has to be the highlight. In my opinion, I'll, sorry. I'll... In my opinion. <laughs> in my opinion, that's always a caveat. Uh, I'll, I'll indulge myself and I'll tell you a wee funny story about losing a, a European final. So I've said before that uh, the, the Celtic game I would love to have been at uh, that I hadn't been uh, if I had a choice was actually the, the final we lost in 1970 in Milan because, because my uncle and brother 
uh, at my uncle and brother. My uncle and uh, granddad were at that game and, and drove down from Glasgow to, to get to Milan. But the reason I wanted to tell the story was uh, I was at a, a Celtic Feyenoord friendly. Uh, now, the only memory I have of it was that it was while the temporary sand was still up. So it must have been about 96, 97, something like that. So if somebody in the comments knows and, and can point me in the direction of it, but I think it was a pre-season friendly anyway. And I got... Uh, a, a, a man was walking along the front and I was in one of the front rows and uh, he, he was a Feyenoord fan and he gave me his scarf. And I looked up and says, says to my mum, this, this is great, this is this is, man gave me his scarf and she had tears in her eyes and I... F- who knows, my mum's an emotional person at the best of times, so I thought I'll, I'll leave it. But anyway, years later I says, do you remember we were at that Celtic game and you were crying when that man gave me his scarf? Why were you crying? And she says, because... One of the stories she remembers my granddad telling was that when he was in Milan, obviously in those days you, you got a ticket any which way you could. And uh, so they were sitting in amongst Feyenoord fans, Celtic fans, everything. <coughs> so he had apparently swapped scarves with a Feyenoord fan at the start of the final. And uh, so that was what made her emotional. But I always remember my uncle completing the story for me. So I was talking to him about it and he says, uh, oh, I had to chase after your granddad at the end of that game. And I says, Dad, where are you going? (laughs) And he says, bearing in mind we lost the game, my granddad turned around to my uncle and says, I'm away to get my bloody scarf back. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that just about sums him up. But that's a wee, that's a wee story for everybody about losing a European final and what it can do to you. You can be all, all good spirits at the start and uh, it can all go at the flick of a switch. But anyway, uh, that's me indulging myself a little bit. But uh, I'll, I'll move on to the next, the next topic, which is obviously... The game coming up this weekend, the Scottish Cup game, the uh, game against Rangers, which I will not be calling what I called it the other week. I'll be keeping to the Glasgow Derby just to keep the comments sane. Um, Tony, I'll come to you first. As you said before, we're, we're going into a little bit optimistic than we have, more optimistic than we have for a while, and there's good enough reason for that. Um, what do you expect to see from Celtic and do you think that we do have a real chance of, of, of getting through the tie? Uh, you know what I expect to see? I say it all the time. What do I expect to see? The rip-roaring, free-scoring, never-boring Glasgow Celtic going to government <laughs> and turning it on. That's what I want to see. That's what we all want to see. Can they do that? I think they're capable. I think if you win 6 now against anybody, then, you know, we, we've spoken... The last few weeks, we have peppered the opposition goal with hundreds of shots. Don't know what the actual stat is, but there's there's been a lot. So that that doing manufactured itself last week to, to Livingston. So I think guys eyes in. They they seem to take their chances well last week. So you know they're they're confident. They're playing got a wee bit of a swagger back. Not saying they're much, but Kennedy's saying the right thing. He boosted them, saying that they're still their best the best team in Scotland. A bit of cardiology there, a wee bit of mind games, a bit of gamesmanship, call it what you like, but it's it's basically saying to Rangers, you're in a game here. You know, we're not the soft touches of earlier in the season, and that's all the Celtic supporters want to see. And, you know, it'll be a big feather in his cap if he can pull it off. And I think, uh, I think everybody wants to know the story with James Forrest, and hopefully he plays, because since he's come back into the side, offensively they've been terrific. They, they have missed him. He cannot you know, for a shadow of a doubt, you cannot say that they haven't. You know, so he adds a new dynamism to the team. So, yeah, so, and go out there and express yourself and enjoy it. You know, because, I mean, most people are predicting the worst anyway. So why don't you just go and relax, play football the way you know you can, and, you know, take, take it to the, take the game to Rangers and see if you can uh, get a morale-boosting victory for everybody, but more so for yourselves. Yeah. Jim, do you do you agree with Tony? Do you expect to see us play with a bit more of a spine this time than we have done in the last few outings against them? Hope so. I mean, the, the reason I wanted the season finished is I'm just thinking anything can go wrong this season is going to go wrong, you know. And you, it would be typical this season if we end up losing one nothing on Sunday to a dodgy penalty or a deflected goal or something like that. But we sat here last Friday and said, well, you know, hopefully. The game against Livingston, we put a good performance in, we scored a few goals, 
keep a clean sheet, go there with a bit of confidence, and, that, and that's exactly what they've done. So I think if if we do turn up, I mean, I think you've got to look at the the last time at Ibrooks, things were fine up to about sixty minutes, and the sending off changed the game. Uh, I would discount the last Glasgow derby because it was a bit of a friendly. Uh, if if we turn up and we get the breaks for a change, then I think we'll win. I think we'll win something like three one. Uh, but it would be typical of this season to, as I said, lose one 0 to. Soft goal or something ridiculous, but I'm going for three one. Confident. That's a Jeez. bold prediction, Jim. Wow. I'm bold today, Tony. I'm bold. <laughs> Jim, I'll, I'll come straight back to you then and, and, and move on oh, to what we okay. think about what the the lineup might be. Uh, obviously, Stephen Welsh announced this week that he'd signed a new contract. Um, I personally would like to see him in from the start. I, I, I don't see any benefit to him. Um, being removed from the team, uh, given the high that he'll obviously be on, having signed that contract, would you like to see him in, or, or would you like to see a change to the lineup? Oh, I think the team he played last week was going to be the team that plays Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. Barry and James Forrest been injured. Uh, I think that's what they'll go with. I'm a big fan of Lee Griffiths. I'd like to see Lee Griffiths play the game from the end of the season, but I thought Mo or Moy played really well last week, and he's kind of changed my mind now about if we could get him. A decent fee, not too big wages. I'd certainly he'd be the one guy I maybe keep next season. So I would certainly go with the team that played last week. They've got confidence, scored the goals, kept the clean sheet. Uh, has to go with that team. And obviously, if Forrest doesn't make it, then one imagines that Ryan Christie's going to come in as a direct replacement. But uh, yeah, same thing as last week. Yeah. Well, Jim, Jim's tried to put me in, in bother there, Tony, I think, because we all know what I said in the, the post-match coverage about who I'd rather keep out the low knees, but we'll, we'll not we'll not touch on that again because poor Colin, if he's watching, will have a heart attack. Um, but I'll come to you. In terms of lineup, what do you want to see? Are you the same as Jim? Would you like to see the same team or, or do you want to, them to mix it up a wee bit? No, the exact same team. These guys, well, you know, they've got the yellow jersey or the green and white jersey, if you want to make it that way, but you know, they've earned the right to start at Ibrook, you know, depending on what happened before us. But I think back to what Jim said there, I mean, El Yanusi frustrates the absolute life out of me. There is a player in El Yanusi. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just not consistent. Yeah. You know, and if we're going to last out five million quid, you need, you need a committed and consistent El Yanusi. You know, because I, I think El Yanusi, well, how many goals has he scored? 15, something like that. 17, I think. Yeah, you know, Elgin is a 25 goal, possibly 30 goal a season guy, if he's consistent. Right? But how many times have you relied upon him when he's not turned up? Yet every now and again, he, he, he turns up and flashes and spits and starts, and you think, there's a player in there. Yeah. You know, that he, he, and it depends on the manager trying to coach it out or make him better or just giving him a free rent. He just go and do what he does. You know, because he, he can score goals and he can affect the play. But I just, five millions, just, that's the worry for me. I just think it's too much to spend on a player like El Yanusi who you can't guarantee will be Mr. Consistent and will, will be a 30 goal man as opposed to the guy that turns up now and again and gets you 17. But, you know, that that's that's not for me to decide. That's for the manager to decide. But, you know, if you can get him for three million or something, I'd. I'd I'd certainly spend that on him. You know, as Jim said, a, a cup price fee and, you know, not a, a massive wage. I would, I would certainly spend two or three million on him, but five, I just think you're, you're wanting better quality for five. You're wanting that consistent player for five. That's just my own thoughts on it, you know, but I, I'm kind of, I'm hot and cold, well, you know. Yeah, I, I think to expand a little bit on what I said in the post-match coverage about, I feel like Laxalt, if, if you're talking about keeping one lone player, I feel like Laxalt, assuming he's going to be under a better quality manager if he does stay next season and if we get our, our appointment pretty quickly, I think there's a better core of a player there who, when better coached, can be a more consistent uh, sort of contributor to the team. But, but Jim, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, given what Tony said, and I agree with him that, that consistency is an issue for, for Moy, in my opinion, that would make me reluctant to spend £5 million on him. What was it that changed your mind um, with the performance against Livingston? Was it just that performance, or have you seen more from him in recent weeks that, that was leading you to make that No, that I think I, th- I think over the last two 
two or three months. He's, he's come on the park, he's scored goals. He's played well. I think one of the, one of the big stumbling blocks maybe his wages. Cause I think he's on a lot of money just now. So it's yeah. quite easy to say, well, maybe if we get him for five million, get him for three million. But I think the wages might be a big stumbling block. But uh, of all the loan players, I just thought he, he certainly got something. You know, and if he could be more consistent and maybe under a different coach or a better coach or playing in a better system with better tactics or with better players around about him, whatever. I just think of the four players, and it's also, you know, we've just lost Patrick Clamalla. Uh, we think Eddie's going to disappear. There's a question mark over Lee Griffiths as well. So where's the goals going to come from next year? He's somebody who's, you know, now, he's now played a couple of seasons here. Uh, he's done okay in terms of scoring goals. He's lots of assists as well. He's played well in Europe as well. So I think if we can get him from that three to five million pound bracket and, and we don't pay him silly wages, I think that'll be the stumbling block. Uh, I would certainly have a go at him because I think that it's also, obviously, maybe we're just, at the end of the day, we're just fans. We don't know who's out there. We don't know who the club are looking at, if anyone. But uh, I would struggle to think, who 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 could we bring in just now? Uh, I don't see many people in the Scottish game, in the English game, it's far too expensive. We have to go abroad. Who's there? Don't know. We've got this guy, has been in the last couple of years. And I thought if we had to pay a lot of money from him, we were talking about eight or nine million before. You would think not for that kind of money, but somewhere in the three to five billion bracket and not having uh, too high wages, I would certainly go for him. Not Laxalt, but I'm going to seem to be calling. Forget Laxalt. <laughs> Hashtag not Laxalt, but that'll be the. Hashtag I'm with Colin Watt. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, Tony. Jimney's Jimney's an interesting point there about where players are going to come from because given the fact that there isn't anybody outstanding that I think would be in our sort of price range or or be interested in coming to us and the fact that, you know, I think Brexit is going to cause a major issue as well as COVID uh, in terms of how how flexible players are about moving, how much finances will be available to, to make them come. Like, how, how are we going to well, sort out the up, the upfront area? Well, maybe not so much the upfront area, but see if you're looking around the Scottish game, right? I'll name four right now. Ferg- Lewis Ferguson at Aberdeen, Alan Campbell at Motherwell, Joyce Doig at Hibs and Nisbet at Hibs, right? Now, they're all standout players, right? Affordable for Celtic. If you're going to go down that route and cherry pick the best of what you've been playing against and know the league. What right? about Shank- Shankland at Dundee United? Would he make that list? Scores a lot of goals. Mm. Uh, don't know if he's a finished product for me, but he scores a lot of goals. So, again, I said it as well. On another, If you score goals, then you can't fail to score goals at Celtic unless your name's Ajeti or Clamalla or Tony, <laughs> Tony Cascarino or Jim Melrose, right? Something like that. <laughs> Going back yeah, for a Celtic Daz, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, but you know what I mean. So if you're doing your homework and you're scouting the best players in your own league, right? There's four that I've named that you can go and get tomorrow, right? Or go and get for part of a future rebuild, right? And who would make a big difference to your team? Would, and could probably afford all of them on the wages that that Moy will yeah. be on, probably. Right, but people yeah. say, but that will not help you in Europe. You don't know. You just ask these guys to take a step up in class and see if they can cope, right? But then if that's the case, then every transfer is a gamble, right? But you're talking about affordable players and the fact that Brexit's going to curb your transfer activity. So you and I and Jim are just fans, but you do watch opposition players and you think, he could be a good player on our team, he could make a difference. Well, I certainly do that. And that those, to me, are the standout ones. That I'm, I'm looking around the Scottish game and those four, Lewis Ferguson, Alan Campbell, Joyce Doig and Kevin Nisbet, to me, could make a difference to a Celtic team. Are they better than what we've got? I would say so, yeah. And you could get them all reasonably cheap. Not cheaply, but, you know, well, cheap enough for a club like Celtic. Well, so, I was going to say, certainly you could you could spend much less than £10 million on them and you would have nearly a, a, a full new team rather than spend £5 million on Yeti, three and a half on Clamalla, £5 million on, on Barca. So, so from that point of view, it makes business sense. But uh, 
We'll see if it comes to fruition. They are players that I would be excited to see in a Celtic shirt and given the way that David Turnbull has settled into things, there's nothing to say that there aren't more that could make that step up from, from other Scottish clubs and I think it's a market that we need to to look into. We're, we're, we're saying goodbye to Scott Brown after all those years of service and all that success and he was part of a, an up-and-coming hip side where those players proved themselves uh, full of quality going forward. So, um, But to round things out, Jim, we've heard your... your, your, com- your, your uh, what's the word? Uh, your prediction for, for the game. You're, you're going 3-1. I'll, I'll, to round things out, I'll ask you who, who you think might get on the score sheet for us. It is not actual. Not Laxalt. <laughs> Eddie Hatrick. Big Eddie game, Eddie Hatrick. <laughs> if he turns up, it could happen. Tony, I'll, I'll say the same to you. I'll ask for a score prediction and who you think might get on the score sheet. I'll say 2-1 and I'll take the man of the moment, Elianusi, to, to score at some point. Yes. I'll give you the winner. I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to go uh, 3-1, the same as Jim, and I am going to back my man David Turnbull to go on the score sheet at some point. I would love it. I would love to see it. But uh, we live in hope. We live in hope. And we'll be back here next week either celebrating or lamenting. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but thanks, everybody, for watching today. Thanks for all your comments. I know it was a bit of a heavy start, but uh, hopefully we managed to pick things up by the end of the show. Um, thanks everybody for watching please share on Twitter and on on YouTube and all the usual platforms and we will see you at the weekend for the game coverage as always thanks very much Marketers Report. Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Social Podcast Network. Sports 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 Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.